0: this week on Writers Inc. Teaching, I mean, you meet so many different people and it, while I've never ever like stolen a student's story, when they they were especially beginning composition, they're writing about their lives. And over 30 years of reading these essays, I've been exposed to so many different stories from so many different backgrounds different than mine. Um, it really helps give me a much greater like empathy for people at large, but just It gives me insight into all kinds of different people and all kinds of different psychology. And of course, it also makes me much more aware of of writing techniques in general, because I have to figure out, you know, I have to be able to articulate what a writing technique is, especially in creative writing. And I have to figure out a way to communicate it other than just saying, do this thing, because, you know, a lot of the stuff you pick up instinctively as you go, you know, when you're an artist but trying to communicate it to other people, you really dig into it and break it down and you get a much deeper understanding of it than you would just as a practitioner. So, I, you know, I always say that I've learned as much, or if not more, from teaching writing than I have, you know, about writing, than I have from doing my own writing.
1: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indy Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as
0: they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name?
2: Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Well, I'm going to call bullshit. I'm going to call it right from the top. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't like my Wi-Fi is out? Isn't that like the the most modern version of my dog ate my homework?
1: Yeah. You know, like as you said that, I just shot you compliments and your your internet wherever you are is working good, and like you just completely went blurry on my screen while you were talking. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're gonna probably lose you at some point.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's you know Zach's dog ate his homework, so he's not here today. I, I I'm not buying it. I'm just not buying his Wi-Fi is done. I think it's a total excuse.
1: I, oh, I didn't realize he wasn't here. Yeah, I guess he's not. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> yeah,
2: Zach who? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's a crazy yeah. time of the year. Who knows, who knows what's going on? Uh, yeah, it's, it's been nuts. We, we kind of have um, quite a few industry-related stories this week, so maybe I'll kick it off and we'll kind of jump right into it.
1: Yeah, you know, like, I, I've got a list. Um, yeah. Do you want to go ahead and rattle through? Or?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll kick it off if you guys are cool with that. I wanted to uh, talk about Kristen Nelson's latest blog post. So um, she, uh, JD's agent, uh, has yeah. been pl- publishing a newsletter blog posts for um, years. And uh, every year at the end of the year, she kind of does like a, a stats version. And so there's kind of two stories in, in one here. The first one is that out of 8,500-plus uh, queries, uh, they signed four new authors. So I, I just realistically putting the stats out there for people who feel like um, there's a choice between TradPub and IndiePub. As I always say, your choice is to pursue TradPub or go IndiePub. You don't get to pick TradPub, you know, unless you're one of those four authors. Um, so that that was pretty interesting. And, and then the other... Uh, the other part of that story is that they're not going to be doing that uh, newsletter anymore um, because their their stats and their click throughs and their open rates are, are re- down a lot and it takes them a lot of work. So uh, I'll kind of pause there and get and get your guys thoughts on either of those two element aspects of the story.
1: Um, well, I haven't read it, which makes me a horrible author on the, <laughs> in the, the Kristen Nelson stable client. of authors. <laughs> um, but and, and I will go out and read it because they are good. Um, you know, like we were talking before the show. I'm just you know at a, a little different portion, you know, place in my career than where, I think where that's actually you know tailored towards. Um, but what, what was her reasoning for only signing for? Was it because did she cite the industry and what's happening on that side, or was it just quality of stuff, or did she just not give a reason? I,
2: it's Uh, year over year, it's pretty consistent. Like that is basically the percentages that you're playing. I don't know, Christine. I think you're probably closer to that than I am. Do you think that's accurate?
3: Yeah, I do think that's accurate. I don't think uh, most agents sign more than a handful of authors a year because they just can't give them the attention, right? They already have their own authors that they have to give attention to their work. And, um, you know, I I don't think it's a priority, especially if you already have a list that's doing well. Uh, You really have to find an author's work that you love and really speaks to you to put in that effort. Um, And yeah, I know there was uh, a couple years ago, some people who were signing 20, 30 people a year, and it was kind of caused an uproar about that's irresponsible. How can you pay attention to that many authors? So I think we forget, you know, they already have a list of a bunch of authors and taking on a new author is a lot of time investment.
1: You know that brings up something that I've kind of learned just watching the industry and being part of this for like the last decade or so. um, That I think a lot of authors don't think about, and that's what stage of the of their career is the agent in. Um, Because I I know when I first started putting query letters together, the first thing I did was I you know ran to my bookshelf and said, well you know these are my favorite books. Who reps these people? Um, And you know you start putting a list together along those lines. But you know what you learn after you've been around a lot of those people is you know a lot of those agents because they've got a bestseller they've got this one author who just does so phenomenally well for them. They do spend a lot of their time on it. Um, they don't have to accept queries as often. Um, and a lot of them, I think in a lot of ways, I don't want to say they get lazy because that's not the case. I think their business model just shifts away from you know looking for new authors and cultivating that particular market to sustaining their existing authors. And how do we take this person from you know their current level to the next level? Um, I, so in a lot of ways, I think if you're going to get out there and you are going to query, um, you know, it's very helpful to try and find an agent that's newer, I think, in the industry, somebody that's hungry, just like you are as an author, like somebody who really needs that author to, to hit big, um, that's going to rally for you um, versus what, you know, Kristen just mentioned, you know, like there, there are a lot of places out there, you know, bigger shops that will sign, you know, a lot of people and you just you end up being one of 300, one of
2: 400 and you just vanish. I think too uh you know JD to your your question about this number is it typical or not I also think that and and they and, and she kind of alludes to this in the blog post it's kind of a shrinking pie too you know there um you know it, it's it, there's there's mergers there's buyouts uh the you know we we have we've had a strike we've we have editors getting getting let go um just you know statistically speaking there just aren't as many pieces of that pie to go around and if i were an agent i would be very reluctant to take on a new author
1: Yeah. I mean, I I know Kristen gets a, she gets slammed with submissions. I mean, she, when I talked to her, if I talk to her in the morning, she's like, I had three to 500 messages in my inbox right now. And like, that's just her. She's got other agents on her, you know, on her payroll that, and so they're all kind of in that boat. Um, and when, you know, when she reads a submission, she tends to read the entire thing and she, you know, she's not one of those agents that just ghosts you. She sends a, you know, very long detailed letter back, you know, even if she doesn't take you of, you know, this is what I liked, what I didn't like. And this is what I think you should change before you move forward with it. Like she spends a lot of time on this stuff. Um, so, you know, from her standpoint, I'm sure there's only, only so many hours she can put into it. Um, but yeah, with the industry shifting, like it's it's a, a very weird thing. I mean, one of the reasons why I love working with Kristen is she is very open minded and she understands where the industry is going. And, you know, every one of my titles recently, it's been, you know, a hybrid approach. You know, I'm indie publishing portions in, in certain countries. She's selling it in other places. Um, she's, you know, totally open to that sort of thing. And there's still a lot of agents out there that are very reluctant to, to go that route. You know, if you tell you know a lot of agents that you're you know you've indie published or you'd like to indie publish in the future or you'd like to mix it up in some way or another they just kind of wash their hands of you and you know put their head back down in the sand but i, I think you know that the smarter ones the ones that are really you know on top of this industry they know that's where it's going like nobody can stop it you can pretend it's not happening um, but that's the the shift that's happening so you need to take advantage of it
2: yeah the the related thing to this too it it, it ties into this and and this is um this is sort of the subtext of the post uh, of you know fewer opens, fewer click through rates, people not necessarily reading these blog posts I, I mean, I don't want to be chicken little, but i I also think that we're in a we're in a time within the industry, especially on the self publishing side, where a lot of stuff's been said, <laughs> you know like i a lot of stuff around querying um, around self publishing around marketing around social media all aspects of writing like that information's kind of out there now and i'm not surprised that people are consuming less podcasts less blog posts less youtube channels because there's really not much new things being said and and it doesn't bode well for folks like us who are in in you know the content marketing for for writers and authors but I'm just being honest, I think I, I see that on the landscape and, and I think that's a trend that we're in. And I, I think that just means like the, the folks who are in it are gonna really have to up their game if they wanna stick around.
1: Or, or, or change it up
2: completely. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly so uh, yeah what so JD you got a list of news stories what else are we talking about today
1: yeah you know it's funny sometimes I, I start Thursday and I've got absolutely nothing for you guys but like it's it's been a crazy week so we've got HarperCollins um, still on strike it's day 28 um, I'm getting emails from Harper Collins employees you know they, they are moving forward with with things but you know it's basically one out of every you know hundred employees or something actually working right now so they're just getting bogged down with a lot of work but there there are people in there trying to to keep the machine going um, from what I'm hearing they're they're not close to a resolution um so after a full month it, this this may go on for a while um you know and that that impacts people like Kristen too that's it's one less publisher they can submit to there's a lot of imprints under HarperCollins that are basically off the table right now um so we've got that going on i, I logged into amazon this morning and i don't know if you guys have seen this but they changed their author page have you guys lo- logged in yet
2: no. no i haven't looked at it today
1: yeah so it's it's like totally different um and is it you know, like the way for it-
2: everyone because they do a lot of a b testing
1: that's the thing. Like, I really don't know. Like I, Uh, I looked at, you know, like every author page that I pull up is the new format, but that doesn't mean that it's like that for everybody that's looking at Amazon. Um, So that's happening. I just read something about a bipartisan uh, bill being signed to try and ban TikTok in the U.S. Yeah. Um, So I I don't know where where that's going to go. And you know, there's a lot of privacy concerns with TikTok. You know, the information that they gather, what they have access to. Um, This latest book that I wrote, I really dive into that. You know, what these you know apps have access to on your phone, and they basically have total you know visibility on your life unless you go back through the you know and and start blocking things out. But those terms of services are are pretty nasty, and, and TikTok being one. One of them.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I know like the, the immediate response that I hear, it's a bit of an uninformed response, but is like, well, so what if TikTok knows what videos I'm watching? It's way more than that. Uh, and, and I think there's legitimate concern from the government, which is why they're banning it on, on government devices and, and, and looking towards all devices. I'll give you an example. If you click on a link from TikTok it doesn't open it in your browser on your device. It opens it within TikTok. It the, has a built-in browser, which means TikTok is tracking everywhere we, everywhere you go. So imagine you click on a TikTok video and it's something about a health concern, and now that data gets sold to an insurance company who then says, oh, well, that's a high-risk health issue, and they drop you from, from the insurance plan. Like, that's not that crazy of a situation. So I think when folks say, well, I don't really care if TikTok knows I'm watching you know some some video I, it's it's way more insidious than that
1: yeah, and, and you know it's it's one of those things. I think like they're focusing on TikTok, but it's really all the apps. It is you know, they're they're they they're all doing this. TikTok is just you know they've got the the lucky job of being the the flag bearer. I think on this because whole
2: thing. their servers are in China. That's why
1: because yeah because they're in China. Um, you know World, World War Three China U.S. Like that's <laughs> I think that's where where they're leaning. Um, but I, I do know that um, government agencies I, as of today have actually banned TikTok. So government employees aren't allowed to have TikTok on their phones, and I'm guessing that means their government phones. I, I don't think they could actually prevent them from keeping it on their personal right. one. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Uh, USA Today, um, this was a big one. They, they paused their bestseller list and they let their editor go, their book editor, um, because of budget cuts, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that that says a lot about the industry as a whole. Um, I think from an indie author standpoint, it's a, a pretty serious blow because I know a lot of authors, you know, that it's very difficult to get that New York Times bestseller tag, not quite so difficult to get the USA Today um, bestseller tag. Um, and now that's gone. Um, I, I doubt it's going to come back. These kind of things typically don't. Um, so that that's happening. Um, and I just I, – I got an email earlier from um, somebody just talking about Wonder Woman 3. Apparently there's a lot of stuff happening in um, in Hollywood right now where they're, they're reevaluating. So Wonder Woman 3 got canned. It's basically been shelved. Um, they're not saying that they've outright pulled the plug on it, um, but that's basically what it's, it's leaning towards. Um, and they're basically reevaluating the entire DC movie um, franchise. Um, You know, there's a lot of money involved in in something like that. And I think, you know, coming out of COVID, I think we obviously still have a lot of problems. I've got three movie theaters within five miles of my house. They're all closed. I don't see them opening anytime soon. And ironically, like the poster that's by the front door of two of them is Wonder Woman uh, 1984. It's like the last poster that they hung up before they shut the doors. Um, But I think a lot of people just aren't going to the movies anymore. And I don't know whether that trend is going to come back. So we'll see.
2: Yeah. You know, Christine, I wanted to ask you about the USA Today bestseller tag, because I know you and I are are pretty deeply engaged in in indie communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, How long do you think it'll be before that's a worthless set of letters? I mean, like there's a there's a shelf life on that, right? Like a year from now, is a USA Today bestseller tag going to be worth anything, even if you earned it a year or two ago?
3: Yeah, that's right. And I I think, you know, being current is always a big deal. Um, You know, I'm in a lot of discords and slacks with a lot of indie authors, and there was a lot of moaning and lamenting the loss of that yesterday, especially with people who were close. They were like, oh, it's my new release. It's going to be it. And um, yeah, there's not a lot of other kind of things that are available to indie authors. You know, New York Times bestsellers list, they've made it virtually impossible for indies to get on it now. Um, Yeah, I I think six months, a year, I I don't think it's going to mean much unless they can get that up and going again. And it doesn't look like they have any kind of plans for that, right? So...
1: Uh, I, I honestly, I mean, just looking at this objectively, like I, I've got a lot of books in different countries, and, you know, there, there are other publishers that will put that on the cover in, in a foreign territory. Um, so I, I think it's useful if you have it. I don't think the fact that it's, that, that it's going away is going to hurt anybody that actually has that particular tag. I think, you know, obviously the people that could have gotten it a year yeah. or two from now, like they're the ones who are really in trouble. I think once you've got that, that moniker, you know, whether it's New York Times or USA Today or Daily Mail or any of the big papers around the world, um, it's It's always going to be useful to you, Um, more so than awards. I think it just you know it's one of those things everybody recognizes. But it's going to be that much harder to get. Um, That being said, I think just being able to say that you're an Amazon bestseller, I think, is is picking up a lot of steam. um, Which is you know we'll we'll see where that goes too.
2: Yeah, I mean that's you know I'm I'm thinking uh, I'm not a developer, but it it doesn't seem like it'd be that difficult to scrape. Um, you know ISBN numbers or uh, or sales off of the major platforms. Even if you said, okay, it's Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble, Apple, Google Play. Like even if you just limited it to those four, it seems like it'd be pretty easy technically to aggregate all of that sales data and create a a bestseller list that is strictly based on sales numbers. That, that could be that that validator that, that people are looking for. Whether it's whether it's trad or indie. So I think that's the next JD Barker initiative.
1: <laughs> yeah, you well, know, I, I will never go there. Um, I mean, one of the things that always bothers me, if, if you look at an Amazon bestseller list, the top 20, 30 books are all Amazon imprints. Right. Um, I, I think somebody is going to call them out on on that at, at some point. And by, by somebody, I mean a government regulator is going to step in and say, hey, how are you guys calculating this? What does it take? You know, it, it seems very coincidental that all of your titles are at the top of your own list. You know, what is this actually based on? Um, I, I would love to see a list that was based based solely on sales you know it, it like you said it's very easy to get out there and aggregate all this stuff drop it into a database and, and you know they could create a real-time ticker if they wanted to um, nobody seems to want to do that um, I, I don't know what the reasoning for not wanting to do it is um, but it, but it's sad I mean even like the New York Times like that is such a mystery nobody really knows what it takes to actually get on that list you know the people who actually work in the bookstores who fill out the forms every week you know now online like they couldn't tell you you know what it takes to actually get on that list you um, you know, so USA Today was, you know, honestly, honestly one of the closer ones because it was pretty close to an aggregator, um, and with that gone now, I don't think there's anybody else really stepping up.
3: I have a question about weight because we we were talking about this, I think, in your community, Jay, about making the bestseller list, and there are all these different categories on Amazon, right? And you're like the bestseller in metaphysical military stories for teens, and so it's like, <laughs> how does that get watered down? And then. Um, when your book goes free you can be a bestseller but it doesn't really distinguish that that category is different than paid books so i just wonder if it's going to be difficult for amazon bestseller to take off with all of these authors already claiming their amazon bestsellers if that makes sense
2: it. i, I mean it seems like there's a ton of ad money uh, or affiliate income at stake here for someone to create um a site that just aggregates this and and places ads on it like i I'm just shocked no one's done it. Like I, I I won't go down the web three rabbit hole, but like uh, you know, there's something called topoftheblocks.com for for music NFTs. And they just scrape all the data from from Etherscan. Like it's just publicly available and then they can they bring it into a list. And there's no, there's no like mystery box, there's no one putting their thumb on the scale. It's like this is the volume of, of ETH that was traded, and therefore this is the number one NFT of the week. Like that just seems technically to be a pretty simple thing to do to me.
1: Well, the only one who could really do it, like realistically, is a company called Bookscan, um, because they're already set up with all the major bookstores. They're they're already tracking, you know, print sales. Um, I don't know how far their reach is on the ebook side, um, and that might be as simple as you know Barnes and Noble and Amazon saying no, we're not giving you access to the data. I mean, that might really be what's going on. Um, my biggest problem with you know somebody claiming to be an Amazon bestseller is that there is no way to really verify it. You know, like, the, you know, you right. don't get like a little blue ribbon that shows, you know, like if they kept something on the book that said this one hit number three on this particular list, um, if there was a way to research that, it would be one thing. But there's not. I mean, for me personally, I know I, I you know, went out there at the time and would capture screenshots and I just I saved those, you know, because there's no other, you know, 15 minutes later, it's gone. Um, so there's that, too. I, I think the process is going to probably tighten up, you know, at, at some point. I think somebody's going to call them out on it.
2: Yeah, wouldn't be surprised. Well, uh, yeah, like we said, a lot, lot of news. So uh, let's take care of some uh, business here, and then we'll get on to the interview for the week. want to give a wonderful shout out to the folks at wordandpixel.com. They redesigned our spiffy new website. So if you're looking for your website to get overhauled or redesigned or even built, go to wordandpixel.com. And as always, want to give a shout out and word of thanks to our wonderful friends over there at Kobo Writing Life, Tara and her team. Are empowering you, the author, to take your self publishing career into your own hands. If your book is going to go wide, you got to go to Kobo because you can set your price, you keep all your rights, and all of that without any exclusivity. You can use the link in the show notes or head there directly by going to KoboWritingLife.com. JD, who's up this week? This week we've got uh,
1: Tim Wagner. His first novel released in two thousand and one. He's published more than fifty novels since then, uh, including a ton of tie-ins for shows like Supernatural, Alien, Doctor Who, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Transformers. Um, a cool guy to talk to. He's just one of those people that's been in the industry for a very long time. Not necessarily a household name, but you know, making a living out there with 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 words. So here he is, Tim Wagner.
2: I need to know who won first place in the 1984-1985 Nexus Writing Contest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I think it was probably Pete Ficht, maybe.
2: Okay, okay. Uh, I, I figured you would have some sense of that because uh, that, was the, that was the first award you listed on your website. And uh, second place is a tough spot to be in.
0: that was all right though. I was still excited.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, we, uh, we happen to be discussing, we happen to be talking virtually, but in the state of Ohio, you're, you're in Dayton. Mm -hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you do in Dayton.
0: Well, I'm a full-time professor at Sinclair Community College, teach composition and creative writing. Excellent. Uh, how did that, how did you, uh, come to teaching? Well, when I was in school, like, you know, grade school, I realized I spent as much time watching the teachers, how they did their thing, as, uh, than I did paying attention to the subject. I was just fascinated by the difference between them. And then as uh, years went by, you know, I started off in college as an acting major, because I was in theater in high school. But I quickly realized I didn't want to be an actor. So I switched to theater education, which had English as a secondary teaching field and I thought at the end of four years i would probably figure out one of these th- three things to do and all during that time you know I was working on my writing I knew I wanted to do that but when, it, when my undergraduate degree was finished I was like yeah I, I really enjoy teaching so I went on to get a graduate degree so I could teach in college where I could focus on the kind of writing that I like to do creative writing especially
2: Mm, okay. Okay. Uh, had you considered any other paths, whether it was early on or in college or was, was teaching you pretty much locked into that?
0: No, I mean, I started off thinking about, about being a comic book illustrator at one point. Uh, and I created my own little comic book featuring myself and my friends as superheroes, like in sixth grade. <laughs> and they, they loved the stories, but they hated my art, which made me mad because <laughs> I just wrote the stories just so I would have art, you know, to draw. Uh, and then, you know, I was in, uh, the band and so like a lot of creative people, I tried lots of things. So I played trumpet for a while and then I was in drama club. So I was in theater and, and that's what I started doing at first was theater before I kind of shifted over to just focusing on writing and just focusing on teaching.
2: Excellent. Yeah. I've, uh, I have a background in, in education as well. Uh, I, I'm curious to know how your teaching influences your writing and vice versa.
0: Well, the, the, Teaching, I mean, you meet so many different people. And while I've never ever like stolen a student's story, when they they were especially beginning composition, they're writing about their lives. And over 30 years of reading these essays, I've been exposed to so many different stories from so many different backgrounds different than mine. Um, It really helps give me a much greater like empathy for people at large, but just it gives me insight into all kinds of different people and all kinds of different psychology. And of course, it also makes me much more aware of of writing techniques in general, because I have to figure out, you know, I have to be able to articulate what a writing technique is, especially in creative writing. And I have to figure out a way to communicate it other than just saying, do this thing, because, you know, a lot of the stuff you pick up instinctively as you go, you know, when you're an artist. But trying to communicate it to other people, you really dig into it and break it down and you get a much deeper understanding of it than you would. Just as a practitioner, so uh, you know, I always say that I've learned as much, or if not more, from teaching writing than I have, you know, about writing than I have from doing my own writing.
2: Oh, that's so true, and and I, I certainly won't name any any one specific, but I'm finding that in in the masterclass.com classes where you have world class performers and athletes and leaders, and they might be world class in what they do, but they can't articulate that, or they are they can't they can't help other people do that. So. Have you developed a system or a process or a framework that helps take the ideas and the process you
0: have as an artist and help other people use those? Um, A lot of it's trial and error over the years. Um, I read in a newsletter, education newsletter years ago, the just, I can't remember where the quote came from, but the person said, the best teachers, first, they can do the thing, you know, whatever it is. Second, they understand the thing. Uh, how to do the thing. And then third, they can communicate to others how to do the thing. And when I read that, it really kind of helped give me a simple little formula for the steps to try to, you know, if I can do something, let me try to figure out how I do it. And then how can I communicate it to other people? And that helps a lot. I mean, instead of me just trying to kind of wing it and just try to articulate my own experience, that those three steps kind of help me figure out. Uh, how to tell it to people. And sometimes it happens through conversation with people too. If the students will be asking me a question, a lot of times what they say makes me realize, oh, this is the way that I can communicate this thing to them. Cause I can start hearing how they're sort of grasping for a concept and the language that they're using. And so I can play off that and that works really well. And then of course, then I can just use it again for another class. And then I look smart. (laughs) Yeah.
2: When you teach it the second or third time, that's when you're really in the groove and you know, you have something there. That's right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you, your thing is is very impressive. I mean, you're an extremely prolific, uh, productive, creative writer and artist. I would love to, uh, if you could take us back and tell us how you found out that you won the Bram Stoker. Oh,
0: wow. Um, I found out at the Bram Stoker Awards banquet <laughs> when they announced the winners. They, they
2: didn't give you any
0: heads up, any like sneak? Nope. Uh, yeah. nope they don't do that. Uh, yeah, so I was just at a table with some of my friends, uh, just kind of the way it worked out. They, uh, two of them were nominated for the same award I was. So we were all oh, wow. just kind of waiting to see, you know, we would have been happy for each other. But still, uh, it was my first one. So I was pretty excited. I don't really remember a whole lot about walking up there. I don't really remember a whole lot about what I said. <laughs> um, I do remember there's a, a writer named Tom Montlione who was in the audience. And years earlier, I talked to him at a conference. And he had just we were chatting about awards, and he said, "Well, have you ever won an award?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Oh, that's okay. One day you will." And then he just went on to talk. And then, like a couple decades later, he was out in the audience, and I can remind him of that story and say, "You were right." So, wow, that I remember because it was pretty cool. Yeah,
2: yeah, that is cool. Uh, You you wrote uh, a blog post a number of years ago called "Getting Lucky," and uh, I I think it's easier. It's easy sometimes for people to say, well, you know, so-and-so's lucky or they just knew the right person or, or, or whatever it happens to be. And it sort of discounts the, the hard work that's the foundation of, of the success. So Can you talk about a, a little bit about your perspective on what
0: role luck plays in your career, your writing? Yeah, it, it plays a huge role, just like everything else, I think. But the, that post is in response to a lot of people that I, I'd seen online saying that that's like the only thing. The thing, the only thing that leads to any kind of success in the, in this case, it'd be, you know, in terms of a writing career is just luck. And it's not true because there's so much more to it. And like you said, it does discount the hard work. I think part of it is because, uh, it it could be like a, and this is just me guessing, I don't know, but it could be a way to kind of, for people to make themselves feel a little better if they're having trouble succeeding because they can say, well, it's out of my control. You know, I, I, so it's not me, it's just the universe. Uh, But I think part of it is just the way that writers are portrayed in movies and TV shows and things like that, because watching somebody work really hard for a number of years and then get published is not an interesting story. But, you know, somebody who's walking down the street and they accidentally bump into a literary agent who says, you look like somebody who could write a great book. (laughs) You know, that makes for a much more interesting story and it's faster. So you can put it into a, a visual narrative pretty quickly. Um, And of course, you know, the people that often get interviewed are super famous writers. And a lot of times there's, you know, hard work, but um, becoming super famous a lot of times is there's like a a luck aspect to it as well that they talk about. And that sort of gives the impression that, you know, all artists need luck to succeed. You don't usually hear like, not in a big way. You don't hear about just like everyday artists that are just kind of plugging away and doing their thing. But there are thousands, if not millions of artists like that all around the world. And I think that it it is important to acknowledge the role of hard work, but there's also a ton of luck because I could point to all kinds of things I published that were just me hearing about by um, happenstance that, you know, there was a call, the the job I have teaching now, I just happened to be looking in the the one ads one day and saw the ad. Um, So if I hadn't seen it that one day, I wouldn't have known about it. And that would have changed the whole course of my life. So sure. Luck plays a huge part, but you also have to make prepare yourself so that you can actually it take advantage of luck when it strikes.
2: Yeah. That's a distinction I think is lost on a lot of, on a lot of people. Uh, would you agree that you have to have a, a particular mindset so that luck presents itself? Um, in, in other words, if you have a a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, you're going to be looking for those opportunities that you might look back on and say, oh, that was lucky. But in, in, in essence, you're creating your own luck. Do you prescribe to that?
0: Yeah. I mean, with the, the example of the one ad, I mean, I was at that point, I'd been teaching part-time for a while while I wrote. And uh, uh, my first wife, she wanted to stay home with our youngest daughter. And I was able to stay home more with our first one. And so I'm like, okay, I got to take over, find a full-time job. So I had been looking. Uh, it, it wasn't like I was reading the one ads for the hell of it. Uh, so yeah, I think that you do have to have a mindset of of not only being open to luck and recognizing it, but also going out and kind of looking for opportunities. Because I even now I spend all kinds of time checking out, I see a submission call for whatever I look at it, whether it's for me or something I can go ahead and pass along to my students. But yeah, I think the, the, the growth mindset, the way you put that is, I think that's a very good way to look at it. it. It does make a huge amount of difference.
2: Yeah, I can't take credit for it. That's Carol Dweck, but thank you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you you tweeted not too long ago that the thing about writing a book on horror writing is that now i imagine people reading my fiction and saying to themselves he's not following his own advice what a hypocrite uh, yeah. tell us about writing in the dark where that you know why you decide to publish a book on on writing horror and and sort of you know um, what we can get out of that
0: well it's, it started a long time ago and i was just seriously think you know becoming a writer just starting to write stories seriously with an aim of getting them published and I was probably in my late teens and still living at home. I was an undergraduate. And my dad came home one day and he handed me a magazine. He said, I saw this at the bookstore. I thought you might be interested in it. And it was writer's digest and I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. And I was also like, didn't say anything, but I thought it was cool. My dad thought I'd be interested. Like, Oh, my dad thinks I'm creative. This is awesome. And so it was warm out and I sat on the porch and I read that thing cover to cover and it didn't matter what it was, you know, a poetry column, an article on writing greeting cards, I didn't care. I was fascinated with all of it. Um, so one of the things I was fascinated by was kind of like I, I talked about with seeing, uh, watching teachers and how they taught, I was really interested in the way the writers wrote about writing, how they were articulating uh, the the principles that they were talking about, how their personalities came through uh, in their writing. And then I uh, quickly became a fan of Lawrence Block's fiction writing column when it was in Writer's Digest. So I sought out his books on writing. I sought out his mystery novels. Um, and uh, when I finally did write Writing in the Dark, I dedicated it to him and uh, sent him, made sure he had a copy of it. Uh, so over the years, you know, I had, uh, as time was going by and I was publishing fiction, I would write an article here, an article there about, you know, how to write. And, uh when I started a blog, I thought, okay, I'll start a blog for self-promotional purposes, but I didn't know what to say in it. And an editor friend of mine is like, you're a teacher to write about writing. People read that. I said, okay. And so I just started writing, you know, maybe once a month, every couple of months, whenever I could just different articles about writing, things like that, like the one you mentioned about the being lucky. And then as, you know, as the years went by, I kind of thought, you know, maybe someday it would be really cool to write a book on writing. Um, I've enjoyed so many of them. I think they're so interesting and uh, the ones about horror writing, since that's ten what I tend to specialize in more than anything else, um, they're good, but they tend to be um, uh, chapters written by different people and it's very surfacey kind of information. They didn't have a whole lot of, you know, dig down deep and help people with specific techniques they could try to become better writers. And I thought, well, that's cool. I could do that if I wanted to. But I didn't feel like I was ready. And eventually, you know, as time went by, I was like, well, you know, I won the Bram Stoker Award. Maybe people, (laughs) they'll take me a little more seriously after that, maybe. But I also just had accumulated enough blog material that I could use some of it to go ahead and expand and put into a book. And a number of things that I could just write brand new chapters there. And I thought maybe it was the time. So my agent and I pitched it to a number of publishers before we found one that was interested. And I just went for it. And uh, writing it was very weird because it poured out of me like water. And then I almost forgot everything in it for three or four months. People be asking me, what's in your book? I'm like, I don't (laughs) really know. I can't remember. So what, what people can get out of it is, you know, hopefully a deeper understanding and appreciation of the horror genre in general, but a lot of very specific techniques that they can use to help make their horror stories a lot more original, a lot more effective, you know, hopefully, whether you're a beginner or a mid-career writer or an old pro, you'll find something that will help like, you know, take your writing to a higher level.
2: And do you have an example of something that prompted that tweet, That, that something you teach in the book that uh, you don't do or didn't do?
0: No, it was mostly just seeing people on, on Twitter saying things like, oh, you know, I read this book and it's great. And I'm like, oh, that's right. Everybody's reading this stuff. And now if they read this book and then go read one of mine. But there's a, there's a little bit of that when you're a teacher anyway, you know, uh, you know, you think, The student's going to call me out on this. They're going to realize that teachers are just people. We're not almighty gods with all knowledge of everything. Um, So, you know, that's kind of a normal. I'm used to that from class. Long ago, I got used to the fact that it's perfectly fine, that I don't know all the answers. You know, I'm more like a, I don't know, the guy today. I'm like some kind of programmer in a class. Right. So, you know, more of a feeling of we're all in this together, trying to kind of grope our way toward becoming better at this thing. So, yeah, so I'm not really wasn't that upset about it but, or that worried about it, but it just struck me that day. And I thought, I'll put this on. <laughs> I'll go ahead and throw that out there and see what people think. Well, I'd love to know a
2: little bit more about how you balance the the day to day mechanics of, of teaching and writing. Do you do you have a dedicated writing time or a dedicated writing place? What's that look like?
0: Yeah, before COVID and we had to stay home because now my dedicated writing place is what, what you're looking at right now is me sitting in my computer at home. Um, But for years, I used to go out and write in coffee shops by hand. And uh, then I'd come home and transcribe it. Uh, Getting away to a a coffee shop was great because no no students, no kids, no dogs, no wife, no chores around the house to tempt me away from writing if it's it's going a little hard. Um, And there was, there's something about, I had a psychologist once tell me because I grew up in a noisy household, I concentrate better with a certain amount of noise around me. And what's nice about Starbucks is there's all this noise and activity, but none of it's, nobody's going to come bother you. And so I found it was a lot easier for me to write that way. Um, Now, of course, I just, I don't go out anywhere, you know, unless I have to. And so I, I, I'm just back to typing directly into the computer the first time. Um, In terms of a writing schedule of teaching, one of the things that's nice about teaching college is that the grading is whenever I want to do it, as long as I don't, you know, put it off. I mean, it's under my control when I do it. The classes are all fixed each semester. The schedule may change in general, but I know the time I have before them and after them and between them. Um, And I can usually fit in writing either, like, maybe a little bit before my classes start, maybe a little bit, you know, after they're all done for the day. Um, and it was just doing that uh, allowed me to, uh, to write a, a pretty good clip. It helps that I spend a lot of time visualizing what I'm going to write. So if I'm just walking around or driving around, I'm often just thinking about scenes and dialogue and things like that. So if I just approach the blank page completely with nothing, um, it might, that's, that would probably be harder. I probably wouldn't be able to produce as much. Um, and now it's the same thing in terms of working around my teaching schedule, except now I don't have a half hour commute two ways. So I've got five extra hours a week to to write. So uh, that helps a lot. And these days too, I've got a really old, she's 15 years old, little dachshund that she wakes me up at five every morning because she's old. And I just say to hell with it and stay up and work. And, you know, that seems to be helped me produce a little bit more too.
2: Are you naturally a morning person? No, no.
0: I'm, I may be becoming one, you know, once, once uh, I have two daughters, they're both in their 20s. But when the first one came, uh, it was like a nightmare for my schedule because I taught at night. I had her during the day and my first wife wouldn't get up with her. She just slept like a log. So I felt like I didn't sleep for months at all. But, you know, your schedule eventually kind of adjust, adjusts around them. And I sort of stayed there a bit. You know, I, it, my natural schedule used to be get up at like 10 or 11 in the morning and stay up till two or three in the morning. <clears throat> that seemed to be my normal schedule. But no, now it's like get up at five in the morning and go to bed about 11. And, you know, maybe they say, you know, I'm 56 now. They say when you get older, you don't need as much sleep. Maybe that's happening to me as well. But, yeah, I may functionally be a morning person, but in my soul, I'm always going to be a night person.
2: Uh, why? I'm curious why you're not handwriting anymore, that that first draft. Was there something about that um, in the coffee shop that's different than it being at home?
0: Yeah, um, it, I don't really feel like it might be psychological, just the, the getting away um but when uh, quarantine first came about I had like a a real uh real short deadline to do a novelization of a movie um I can't tell you which one because the movie got bumped back a year because of covid so I have not been given the the, the go ahead to say that I wrote it but I was super excited to do it but I had like three weeks so for something like that I'm not not writing it by hand plus you know you're with with a novelization you've got to and there's all the dialogue to put in, all the description to not use exactly, but to draw from to write. And that's a lot easier to do at home on the computer than it is by hand. Uh, I've done four of them now, and all of them I've done on the computer uh, rather than do by hand. Uh, But otherwise, there just isn't really a place in my house that I could sit in and write by hand where I would just be alone. Uh, My wife's always around, maybe one of my daughters is, Uh, the dogs are around, and there's just I just don't feel like there's a place that I can go where I'm just isolated to handwrite. And I could I guess, handwrite right here at my desk, but my computer's right here, too. So I'm like, well, I might as well go ahead. And part of it, too, is I, want, I thought it'd be interesting after all those years of, of beginning with a handwritten draft just to go back to doing drafts right on the computer and see how that changed my writing or, you know, what it felt like. And I think there is a difference between the, my writing when it's handwritten first versus when it's typed. You know, I grew up, I didn't learn to type till I was 16. And there were not personal computers until I was about 19 or 20. And so most of the writing I did throughout my life was by hand. And so probably that's hardwired in me in a way that it probably wouldn't be to somebody who, you know, is growing up right now. They're probably typing from the beginning a lot more. Uh, So I think maybe it's a little more natural and easier for me to write by hand sometimes. But it seems to be working out okay. I'm still producing okay and the work seems to be all right. Editors are still buying it, so.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like it's more of a utilitarian decision than a, than a romantic one. They're, they're, you're yeah. not pining for the days of handwriting. It just seemed to work for you at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. The only thing that I, I did have a pang the other day when I got a pen out of this little supply of pens I have, and I realized this has lasted me a year. I used to blast through these things in about a month. <laughs> but yeah, but other than that, yeah, it is a utilitarian decision.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, great. I I, kind of have uh, one fun question that we can pull the conversation to a close with. And this uh, hopefully it'll be fun for you. And there's no right or wrong. But, you know, you've you've been in the industry for a long time. And and the rate of change has accelerated not only in our world, but in in the publishing industry over the past few years. If you look out to the horizon, three, five, seven years out, um, what big changes or what looks different in the publishing industry than than it is now?
0: Well, one of the things that I noticed over the last you know, year when, since COVID hit is that it really threw traditional mainstream publishing for a loop. Um, they just, a lot of, they slowed down. They stopped acquiring manuscripts. People weren't sure what to do. Um, but small press and indie writers just kept chugging along and without anything to stop them. And it seems to me that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but it struck me that they were a lot more adaptable and agile and nimble than, than larger presses, it, it, almost like they're the little uh, the little mammals that were running around during the days of the dinosaurs. And you know, when the dinosaurs kick off, they're still there. They're doing just fine. And so maybe you know the, we might see in the future just more uh, reliance on small press and self-publishing indie authors. Um, consumers don't care where they get their books from; they just care the books are good. And so um, almost everybody probably buys their books online now. And I think that'll keep coming. Um, we might see more of a willingness from readers to read different lengths because you know if something's an ebook, it doesn't matter how long it is; it can be a million pages or it could be three words. It's just what people are willing to pay for, and I think that might allow people to explore different narrative lengths without having to worry about oh, a book has to be so much you know so long in order to justify the amount of paper that's in it in order to make people to justify its price for readers and things like that. Um, yeah, so that's at least right now what I think. I don't know. I'm not saying that mainstream publishing is going to die, uh, but I did watch it wobble <laughs> in this, this, you know, this last year in a way that I hadn't expected it to. Um, so we'll see. Fellow Ohioan, uh, Tim. Great guy. It was, it was
2: fun talking to him. Uh, Christine, I want to kick it to you first uh, because Tim is, uh, like us, uh, has a history in education, And I'm wondering if there was anything that you heard in there that really kind of, uh, you know, got your attention.
3: Yeah, there really was. And I mean, of course, always talking about teaching to learn, you learn something best if you teach it. But uh, what really struck me is when he talked about how reading his students' essays made him more empathetic. And I just um, got thinking about that. Like, do you need a deep sense of empathy to be a good writer or can you be non-empathetic and still be a good writer? So... That's something I was kind of pondering after listening to that.
1: I've got zero empathy. <laughs> I was going to say, you know <laughs> <laughs> what no. Is it
3: genre-dependent? Pretty sure. <laughs> <I'm so laughs> Can you write sad. romance if you have no empathy? I, I
1: honestly, my, my, my first thought when when hearing somebody like Tim is, is I guess, a question for you guys. Like, if, if you're a teacher, it, does it... Is it a, a help? Is it helpful or a hindrance to be a teacher of English or the written word if you're out there trying to write your own books? Because I've, I've kind of heard both. And like, I know if I wanted to become a full time writer, I don't know that I would necessarily be a teacher related to that industry. Um, you know, we just had Paul Tremblay on. He's a, a math teacher, I think. Like, yeah. you know, that's his profession.
2: So. Um, so, I'm yeah, I'm curious about that.
3: That's a Jay yeah. question. I only know brains, so you're going to have to ask Jay about <laughs> English. <laughs> no,
2: it's a double-edged sword. Uh, you know, Clearly, there's, there's scientific evidence that, that shows if you have to explain your process to someone, you get better at it. So I think from a craft standpoint, if you're teaching writing, even if you're not— you don't have to be a master to teach writing. If you can be a little bit better than someone else, you can help them and you can improve your own craft. However, and this is why I think it's a double-edged sword— Is that is that is time spent on teaching and not writing, and so I think for a lot of folks, and I include myself in this, you get caught into this, into the situation where, um, you know, where do you invest your time? Do you invest your time in in writing more stories and 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 publishing those or or querying with those, or do you spend your time teaching other people how to do it? Because we all have a limited number of minutes, and we have to decide where we're spending them. So. So that's my answer. Yeah, it, it definitely can help you become a better writer, but it's at the expense of producing your own work.
3: Yeah. So I'm not a teacher, even though I work in an a education setting. But um, yeah, I, I haven't taught English, but I've done a lot of mentoring or editing or been in writers groups. And I do find that that really has helped me see things that I do in my own writing when I'm pointing them out to someone else. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute, I got to go back to my story and fix that as well but then it does get like you can start putting other people's work ahead of your own and I've um as of now stopped taking editing right so I'm proud of myself because I'm like I have to do my own stuff I'm just editing other people's stuff all the time my stuff's never getting done so maybe it just matters what stage you're at you know I don't know I,
1: I think I think you just hit the nail on the head or at least where, where I'm like I, I mentor a lot of people and now I'm working with co-authors you know and, and I find that fulfilling you know it, it's fun to be able to teach somebody you know somebody something that they haven't heard before that you know might be old I might be an old hat at but you know it's, it's cool to be able to pass on that knowledge but th- that being said like I'm able to dial that up or dial it down like it doesn't overtake my life um, you know I bring in as much of it as I feel I need um, in order to get that fulfillment out of it but I, I can turn it back if I want to I, I guess what where I would have trouble with it as if it was my day job, you know, having to go to someplace every single day, having to slog through, you know, probably a lot of horrible writing in order to find that one you know, essay that is actually good and worth reading. Um, and then to come home and, and, you know, to try to write on my own or write before all that, like to me, that would be difficult. Um, you know, but I, I think if I had to be a teacher, I would probably be you know, like if that was my full time gig, I, it would probably be a, a different subject.
2: Yeah. And, you know, when I when I was a classroom teacher, I was teaching entrepreneurship and before that I was teaching history. So I had a little bit of separation. Like I think it would have been hard for me to to teach English or literature or writing and then try and write my own stuff. Uh, you know, it's still a lot of screen time. It's a lot of eyeballs on the screen, regardless of how you're doing it. But, yeah, that's a good point. And And I think, too, you know, for authors who have a day job or for authors who are looking to have some kind of side hustle or additional revenue stream, it might be helpful if it's something that isn't directly related to writing, you know? Like I know there are a lot of authors who uh, do graphic design work or they're social media managers. And I think having that one degree of separation can really make a difference
1: you brought up something else too, which I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about, but it is luck created. Um, I I honestly think it is. I I know, you know, I've never, I've had a lot of really cool things happen in my life and in my career, but you know, in a lot of ways I've driven those things and forced them to happen. You know, I've taken a situation that was either going sideways or wasn't working out and found a way to tweak it and turned it into something that was beneficial. Um, I I think, you know, that it's a mindset. I think you you have to be able to do that. You know, like nobody really hands you anything in life. they may hand you problems. They may hand you mistakes. They may hand you failures, but like, I think it's the people that are able to take those failures and twist them around and turn them into something, you know, worthwhile, something beneficial. Like those are the ones who get ahead. Um, I really wish you guys would have gone into some of his movie tie-in stuff a little bit more um, because that's a, it's a great way to make a living as a writer where you're not necessarily, you know, focused on having to hit the bestseller list with your own work. You know, like once you get in with a film studio or a production company, they literally send you a script, you know, there's a budget in mind, you know, you you basically have a payday, um, but it's a quick, write. Like he had mentioned that he just did one in three weeks and that that's about the norm. Like you can turn these around in, in under a month, um, mainly because the bulk of the story is already there on paper. You've got the script, you've got the dialogue, you, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, I'm kind of going through the reverse process where you have to take a book and turn it into a screenplay. You strip all of this stuff out, you know, when you're going the opposite direction, you have to kind of put stuff back in there. Um, but it, it can be a very you know cool way to, to make a living, you know, from, from this sort of thing without having to actually try to hit the bestseller list year after year
2: yeah who was the uh was that christopher golden's done a lot of tie-ins as well right isn't that where he started out too yeah. And, you know, it's,
1: it's funny because when you talk to a lot of these, these lifers, these guys that are writing for a living that have been doing it for 20 or 30 years, they all have this in their history. I mean, Dean Koontz actually started off doing it. Um, you know, he was supplementing the books he was writing with, with those because they were the guaranteed payday and, you know, his books, he had no idea whether they were going to sell or not. Um, but, you know, like I said, once you get in with the right people, you know, they will keep sending them to you. You know, like if you turn it around, you know, it because it becomes part of the deadline. Like if you hit that deadline, you turn it around and there's very little work or you give them a finished product, you know, it's just one less thing that they have to worry about they can check it off their list and if you do it right you know they're going to keep sending them to you
2: christine have you ever uh pursued tie-ins
3: i never have i think it's interesting um i've read some of them i know it's big in sci-fi there's all kinds of tie-ins doctor who star trek star wars but no that's not something i've ever pursued i don't don't really know why i don't have a good answer for that
2: so jd i know that uh that Tim's also a Bram Stoker award winner, and you're not as involved in HWA as you are the uh, the thriller writers, um, international thriller writers. But uh, what, what's it take beyond the quality of the manuscript itself to win uh, uh, like an industry award like that?
1: Uh, honestly, you got to shake a lot of hands. It's, you know, all of them are are really about who, you know, um, you know, and and I hate that fact, honestly, like it doesn't really come down to the quality of the work. It comes down to how many friends do you have in that particular organization that are going to recognize your name when it shows up on a ballot. Um, You know, it's and, you know, the smaller organizations that tends to be a a big thing, Um, you know, like even Dracul was up for a Bram Stoker award and we lost (laughs) with a book that was based on Bram's actual work. Um, But, you know, like awards really like I think the agents, a lot of publishers will actually push you to try and get them, but they really don't move the needle. Um, you know not in any meaningful way uh, none that I know of anyway Um, so I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time trying to get them Um, I can tell you that ITW we they get anywhere from I think this year is almost a thousand submissions you know for like one category Um, you know so it's an insane number of books that come in Um, you know kudos to those people who who you know I I did it a few years back and I think I had to read 400 different books and the only reason I was able to pull that off is a lot of the books were titles that I had already read or I knew um, and I can speed read so I I was able to get through a, a lot of them, but obviously not all of them. Um, and that number is increasing year after year after year. So, you know, all these organizations have a big burden on them. Um, I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't spend too much time if you're an author trying to chase those. If you can get one, that's great. You know, I'm sure it looks good on a cover, but it's not going to help you sell books.
2: Yeah, Excellent. Well, uh, really enjoyed the conversation with Tim. Uh, as I said, fellow Ohioan, he's over there in Dayton, which is a few hours from me. But uh, yeah, it, w- it was nice to chat chat with him and kind of hear the perspective of someone who's uh, teaching the craft as well as excelling in it. Um, So excellent. Who do we have on the, on tap for next week? Uh, uh, Other than Zach Bohannon, the mystery guest. (laughs)
1: Well, speaking of movies, we've got a guy named Eric Makritz coming on. Um, his indie published title was called The Reincarnation Papers. Um, it was optioned and adapted uh, for a feature film, um, which eventually came out called Infinite, uh, starring Mark Wahlberg, um, which is a cool story all by itself, how he actually got that to happen. Um, but where the story really gets crazy is this was basically at the start of COVID. Um, so like, production was basically going to start right around the same time COVID really started taking off. Um, so this movie was filmed during COVID. You know, They got it in the can. They finished it and said, okay, nobody's going to movie theaters anymore. We've got a new Mark Wahlberg picture. What do we do with it? Um, So that part of the story is actually pretty
2: entertaining. So it should be fun. Eric Makritz. Excellent. Already looking forward to it. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Authors want to get paid to do what you love? Enroll at Ghostwriting University, the only all-in-one online course taught by one of the world's best co-writers, Alex Cody Foster. Learn how to conduct fascinating interviews, craft a compelling book proposal, find your white whale, and build a dazzling portfolio that attracts highly lucrative deals. If you can write, GU can teach you how to launch a successful ghostwriting business. Join now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at
3: writersincpodcast.com.